The next set of cases was presented to medical oncologist Dr. Neil Maripol and surgical oncologist Dr. Steve Curley. The first case was presented by Dr. Lowell Hart. This patient is a 57-year-old woman who does have a history of polycystic kidney and liver disease, and she was diagnosed with colorectal cancer when she presented with some crampy pain and bleeding in January of 2005. She eventually underwent a low anterior resection, and her tumor was a T3, 2.4 centimeters, moderately differentiated, no lymphovascular invasion. Zero of three nodes were found at the time of the surgery. I saw the patient postoperatively, and I did recommend that she consider a full FOX-type regimen. She was very concerned about toxicity from oxaliplatin and basically refused to take that. So she was given a Roswell Park type regimen with 5-FU and leucovorin, which we started about six weeks after her surgery. She initially did well, but in May of 2005 had some crampy abdominal pains, which got worse. And in the process of working her up for this, she got severe abdominal pain, was taken to the emergency room, was found to have some free air under the diaphragm, and underwent emergency surgery for a perforated viscous, which seemed to be probably a ruptured diverticulum. The surgeon was not entirely clear on what this was, but it was not malignant, not due to recurrence of her malignancy. Just to interject there, Steve, I thought it was interesting with all the attention on bowel perforation related to bevacizumab. We have a patient who got bowel perforation without bevacizumab. What do we know about the postoperative history of typical colonic resections in terms of this complication? Well, obviously, we've seen the same kind of complication. I mean, we tend to forget when we're treating patients with malignant disease that they can have coexistent benign disease as well. I've personally taken patients to the operating room who are on chemotherapy for non-GI malignancies who get a perforation of a diverticulum, a diverticular abscess. You know, I think people also forget we've seen an experience that patients receiving taxane-based therapy can also get GI toxicities. And uh, I've had patients who have ischemic segments of colon who are on taxane therapy. So while there's currently an emphasis with this finding happening with bevacizumab, we've certainly seen the same thing with other types of chemotherapy regimens. And we also, as stated here, I mean, can be a totally non-malignant cause. The patient can just have some problems with diverticulitis that wasn't diagnosed and perforate as a result. And Neil, can you update us on where we are right now in terms of bevacizumab and bowel perforation? Well, it appears that the frequency of bowel perforations remains low with the accumulated data, and it's probably in the range of 1% or so. And the key feature is to just be aware of the potential complication, and when a patient presents in an appropriate context with a particular presentation, to just pursue this diagnosis, because obviously, although it's an infrequent event, it's a catastrophic event, particularly if not recognized early and treated appropriately. Do we know anything more about what the pathophysiology is for these perforations? At this point, we don't have a full understanding of exactly what causes the perforations. And I'd like to avoid hypothesizing further beyond the impact of bevacizumab on vascular remodeling and the maturity of vasculature. But obviously, there is both a weakening in the region of a perforation and perhaps a response to that vascular insufficiency, if you will, that might predispose to this event. Maybe Steve could comment further on and that. And also, what tumors we've seen this with. I think we've seen it with ovarian. We don't seem to see it with breast and lung. Does that help tease out what's going on, Steve? 
Well, and I think the point is well made. We don't understand because there have been both patients who have not yet had surgery for their primary tumor and who have had surgery. So you can't really claim that it's just a post-operative remodeling revascularization process. There are some patients who clearly have a risk factor that I, I have to concur with Neil. I don't think we've been able to tease out exactly what that may be. From the data I've seen, it's not necessarily that they have vascular disease or some other factors that could really contribute. So there's clearly something else going on at a microvascular level that we simply don't understand. Well, I've had two patients who've had relatively innocuous fistulas after radiation in the pelvic area who had extreme catastrophes after starting Avastin. Is that something that other people are seeing, that that's probably a contraindication to using Avastin, or is that just my unfortunate experience. Now, when you say innocuous fistulas, do you mean a radiographic abnormality? So the patient had had a low anterior resection, something of that nature, and had films that demonstrated they had a small sinus tract? Yeah, they both had recurrent cancer, so they're back on treatment for metastatic disease, and in their pelvic area, rectal vaginal or rectal close to where their anastomosis was, a fistula that wasn't particularly bothersome before Avastin and developed into, you know, real deep sacral abscess type things that required diverting colostomies afterwards. Well, the surgical literature, again, in the radiographic literature on this topic has really kind of teased it out. We know that particularly after neoadjuvant radiation and you do a low anterior resection and anastomosis, even if you do some kind of primary diversion to allow healing of that anastomosis, radiographically you can detect asymptomatic sinus tracts, fistulae, whatever you want to call them, in up to 10 to 12% of the patients. But as you stated, they're totally a radiographic finding. The finding of a symptomatic fistula or, again, an actual enterocutaneous fistula, enterovescular fistula, something of that nature, occurs in less than 1.5% of those patients. So symptomatic finding is not that common. In the past, we really didn't worry much about the asymptomatic findings. We all had patients who had that, and we noted them, told them they were there. Personally, I've not seen any problems in any of that group of patients who have then been placed on Avastin, developing, say, as you described, a pelvic abscess or a sacral abscess. We've not encountered that problem. You do actually have a trial in MD Anderson that includes Avastin as part of neoadjuvant therapy with rectal cancer. That is correct. We do. But I guess that's a little bit early to see whether you're going to see complications like this. Right, and obviously we're watching for anastomotic complications very closely in that group. Obviously with wound healing, we know those complications have been described, but we're particularly concerned if you're doing any kind of neoadjuvant therapy where radiation may also be included, adding two things that we know can change the neovascularity and healing of tissue is a great concern. Neil, any other thoughts in terms of this issue, the fistula kind of got out of control? No, I mean, I have to say that whether it's symptomatic or asymptomatic, if I see radiographic evidence of a fistula in the pelvis, I think long and hard about the use of Avastin in that setting. So let's continue with the case. Well, rightly or wrongly, of course, she blamed the chemotherapy for her abdominal catastrophe. (laughs) And as she recovered, she had, again, a somewhat prolonged post-op recovery with Semelius. And when she recovered, she felt she wanted no further adjuvant chemotherapy. And she did well until February of this year when her CEA jumped up to 19. CT scans seem to suggest something in the right lobe of the liver. She has a million cysts in her liver as well as her kidneys, so it's somewhat difficult to tell. But this was hot on PET. And later at the University of Miami, she had an MRI scan done. It seemed to be an enhancing two-centimeter lesion. So she had previously had some surgery at the University of Miami by their surgical oncologist for a massive liver cyst way 
back several years before her malignancy was diagnosed that needed to be decompressed. So we referred her back there and she was seen by a prominent surgical oncologist who felt after looking at it, because of the cystic disease there and all the other factors, felt that she would be better served by radiofrequency ablation. So she underwent in the spring of this year radiofrequency ablation, tolerated it quite well, and was sent back to me for post-op care after that. And you want to carry on to the present? I again talked with her. The surgeon pretty much left it up to me as whether she would take any systemic adjuvant treatment. She again did not want to do anything that had to do with pumps or oxaliplatin or anything that she perceived as being more toxic. I was able to talk her into taking Zolota and she remains on that at this point. She had a follow-up CT scan done the beginning of July which showed some calcifications in the area that was treated but nothing that suggested progressive disease. And her PET scan had previously, I should mention, was clear in the other areas. Her CEA is down now to about five when we last checked it. I just saw her yesterday in the office, so we have a new one pending. And what dose is Zolota is she on? She's taking a total of 2,500 milligrams a day, which was at this point in divided doses. We had to drop it down a bit because she did get some moderately significant erythema of the hands and feet, and that's the dose that she can kind of tolerate with a tolerable amount of erythema. And how many cycles has she had? We started that in May, so she's been taking it from May through July at this point. So I want to chat a little bit about this case. First, Steve, if you can comment on the local therapy in the liver and the issue of the cyst and RFA. Well, may I first ask the question, was the RFA performed as an open procedure or as a uh, It was percutaneous? percutaneous. It was done percutaneously. That's the way it was done. I would love to comment on that. Our own data and data from several other centers have clearly demonstrated that while there's a role for RFA, resection is superior. And the best way I can describe it, when we're performing an RFA, we're asking a piece of equipment to perform a 360-degree sphere of kill not only of the tumor, but its own around the tumor. And we all know that the defect you get after an RFA, you have to warn your radiologist you're doing this, unless it is the radiologist doing it, because they will see this change. Resection is always my first choice if I can resect, and I have resected patients who have polycystic liver disease. So my first choice would have been a resection in this patient, particularly given the lesion you described. The other reason I ask whether this was done as open versus percutaneous, open is clearly a superior way to assess the liver. With radiofrequency ablation, with a resection, we are still finding, even with state-of-the-art imaging, modern helical CT scans, modern MRI, 15% of the time we detect additional lesions. The fact that this patient's CEA has still been hanging at five is bothersome to me. And I suspect that, again, with the difficulties you have of imaging a liver with multiple cysts in it, she's probably harboring some additional disease. And not infrequently, we will find that with ultrasound. It's also possible that some of the reason for the RFA may have been the patient's choice also at the time because she had had difficult post-operative recoveries from both her primary surgery and her emergency surgery afterwards, both of which had prolonged ileus and felt quite debilitated after that. So I'm sure that she was pushing them to some extent for a non-operative approach. And certainly patients can access this sort of information about these treatments on the internet. And I think it's our job to inform them of the data that's out there. And again, the data that we and other groups have published, we were the first group to publish it at Anderson, but now several have corroborated it. And it's been strikingly similar. Current five-year survivals with surgical resection combined with chemotherapy and there's a number of different types of chemotherapy that have been used, is right between 55 and 60 percent. 
With surgery alone, no chemotherapy, the numbers are right at about 30 to 35%. With radiofrequency ablation, again, whether you combine it with chemotherapy or not, the numbers seem to be about the same, and that number is somewhere between 25 and 30%. So if I can look a patient in the eye and tell them that I have a very good reason to believe that I can double their probability of survival if I resect them, I understand they may not want to go through an operation, but they have to have those sorts of numbers put in front of them so they can make a good choice in terms of what's going to be best for them. And again, my other concern is that we are understaging and inadequately staging a number of patients if we do not perform a good intraoperative ultrasound. And again, just as a parenthetic remark, now in these patients, as we all know, we see these patients who have benign liver lesions, cysts, hemangiomas, etc., and they get a staging CT for their colorectal cancer, what we are now routinely doing in all of those patients is at the time of their primary resection, one of the hepatobiliary surgery group will come in and do a very detailed ultrasound, record the images so that we know what those cysts and what those lesions look like, so that if something changes on future scans, we've got that data and we can distinguish between a benign lesion of the liver and a new metastatic focus. I want to ask Neil about systemic management in this situation, but one follow-up to that, Steve. Do you use RFA, and in what situations? We use RFA essentially in patients who have one of two situations. One, multiple bilobar metastases where the only way we can clear them of their disease is to do a combination of resection and radiofrequency ablation. So that, for example, if they've got large lesions in the right lobe, we'll do a right hepatectomy and then ablate one or two small lesions in the contralateral liver. The other group that we still use it in is that small subset of patients who have one or two metastatic lesions that are truly in an unresectable location. And by unresectable, I mean we simply can't achieve a negative margin resection. And in that group, again, lesions nestled right up under the hepatic veins, right on the vena cava, we will do a radiofrequency ablation. Again, preferring to do it either with an open or a laparoscopic approach where we can lay an ultrasound probe right on the liver, both for accuracy of guiding the radiofrequency needle, but also to assess the liver for any additional lesions. Neil? I'd like to make one follow-up comment on the radiofrequency ablation recommendation. There have been a few rare circumstances where we've offered radiofrequency ablation in addition to those situations that Steve has mentioned. And those are the situations where we are really suspicious that this is not the only site of disease and that, in fact, we're doing more palliation than curative surgery if we were to resect. So, for example, a case of a patient who had a dozen metastases in the liver and after effective systemic therapy had a prolonged period where she had only one or two residual metastases visualized radiographically. And then the question was, do you entertain local therapy at all? And if so, do you re-explore this person for resection of what you can see and better assessment of the liver? Or do you sort of hedge your bets and offer something that might not be as effective, such as radiofrequency ablation, with the idea that if some period down the line there's progression in the areas that you ablated, but nowhere else, you might then take that person to the operating room. So a very unusual scenario, but one that I've seen several times where we've made the decision for radiofrequency rather than an open exploration. How do you approach the decision about systemic therapy after resection 
of hepatic METS, Neil, particularly in a patient who hasn't had very much therapy. In this situation, more because of patient preference, but assuming she turned back to you and said, okay, now just tell me what do you think I should do? What would you be thinking about? And would you see a role for bevacizumab? I'm very concerned about this patient. She recurred in liver within a year of completing adjuvant therapy or interrupting adjuvant therapy. She has a CEA level that never went truly to normal afterwards, as Steve had mentioned. And so I'm very concerned that she has a very high risk of harboring microscopic metastatic disease. I think that the likelihood that she will get great benefit out of a fluoroprimidine alone is pretty small. That's not to say that if she refused other therapy that I wouldn't just give her a fluoroprimidine, but I would certainly strongly encourage her to do something additionally. Now, what are the additional things? Well, I typically offer a patient after hepatic resection a combination of 5-FU, oxaliplatin, and bevacizumab. So I really throw the kitchen sink at these people, viewing them as people with metastatic disease. She has well more than a 50% chance of having still residual metastatic disease, and so I treat them as such, and I offer six months of therapy. Now, one of the questions that comes up is, what about hepatic arterial therapy? And there are data with hepatic arterial FUDR showing pretty clearly that you can at least improve the disease-free survival in liver, if not overall survival, with hepatic arterial therapy in combination with systemic therapy. Now, hepatic arterial therapy has had its sort of ups and downs in terms of popularity. It peaked in popularity at a time when initial data from randomized studies suggested that disease-free survival was improved with the use of hepatic arterial therapy, and there was nothing else besides fluoroprimidines to use systemically. The excitement of hepatic arterial therapy has waned both with the recognition of the particular severe toxicities that can occur, particularly biliary toxicity, and also with the advent of more effective systemic therapy because two-thirds of people who relapse after hepatic resection will have at least a component of systemic relapse. So I think most of us are comfortable in general with a six-month systemic approach after hepatic resection, although for people that have had some systemic therapy as neoadjuvant before the hepatic resection, I sort of subtract that from what I give afterwards, so a total of six months. Specifically what? Neoadjuvantly? No, I'm saying specifically what would you generally give post-op? Which specific therapy? Folfox and bevacizumab. So... Really, I will go for a total of six months around the time of surgery. If they've had five months for some reason ahead of time, I'll give them two months afterwards, so I'll exceed the six months. But in general, I shoot for six months. In a person that's had a lot of other systemic therapy before surgery, such as Folfox adjuvant therapy or Folfox and bevacizumab for metastatic disease, heavily pretreated and then had a successful resection, those are the people in whom I might consider a hepatic arterial approach since the added benefit of systemic approach is probably not there in those patients. But I'm very cautious and follow those people extremely carefully in terms of their liver tests and bail out very quickly if there's any significant evidence of biliary toxicity.